G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, you might recall just last week the new ACTU Secretary, Sally McManus, uh, suggested that unions and workers should break unjust laws. Well, we're going to get some insights into uh, that idea of breaking laws, uh, the idea of... uh, of civil disobedience, if you like. And uh, we'll talk about that when it comes to being a Christian as well. But uh, Sally McManus says that in the workplace, workers must have courage to fight what she calls rampant lawlessness. Now, that's interesting coming from the leader of the ACTU, the Secretary Sally McManus, uh, talking about unions and rampant lawlessness in the realms of the employer, in the realms of industry. But you might recall that the last federal election was a double dissolution election and based around the reformation of the ABCC, the Australian Building and Construction Commission. Well, the issues there were around corruption in the union movement. So is this just a slanging match? Or is corruption and rampant lawlessness something that's happening in every realm of our society in Australia? Well, let's talk through some of those issues and a special guest to welcome back to 2020 today, the Reverend Dr. Gordon Priest, who is the Director of Ethos. That's the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. Now, Gordon is chair of the Melbourne Anglican Social Responsibilities Commission. He's also interim director of the University of Divinity Centre for Research in Religion and Social Policy. He wears many hats. He's also priest in charge at Yarraville Anglican Parish in Melbourne and is an international leader uh, recognised in uh, having a great grasp on what we'd call workplace theology. Uh, let's welcome Gordon Priest. Hello, Gordon. Welcome back to 2020. Hi, now. Well, Gordon, always great to talk to you on a variety of issues, but this one today, uh, an interesting one to be talking about, given that you are uh, quite well known as your uh, your uh, influence in this area of workplace theology, because what that really means, I imagine, and I'll get your insights, uh, where the rubber hits the roads uh, in people's day-to-day life in their workplace, in the marketplace, Uh, God has something to say. There is a theology of the workplace. So when we start to talk about these sorts of issues, what influence does our Christian faith have uh, when we start to formulate ideas about what's going on in the workplace? Well, for those of who are, those of us who are in the in the workplace, and let me say, people are, you know, people work um, whether they're paid or, or not paid. So people can be working in their garden or cooking meals or other things too. So I want to make sure no one feels like they're left out here. Um, but it's all about not being just a Sunday Christian, There's seven days of the week, and and we're meant to serve God and worship God seven days a week. You know, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. You know, being renewed. Um, in our minds, like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, and this is our, our um, rational, I think, is the original uh, or, or true worship. And so we've got to put both our bodies and our minds, our, our whole being, um, on the line during the week 
expressing what we've said and uh, sung on a Sunday. Well, and I think that means also, um, sorry, Neil, just to add quickly, I think um, often we've been better on bedroom ethics than ballot box or business ethics or boardroom ethics. And I think that's been a, that's been a major problem for us. We've, we've really got to reconnect Sunday and Monday. Well, as Christian believers, if we want to understand how we have uh, some way of influencing uh, the workplace with our Christian faith, uh, with these understandings of business ethics, as you say, the boardroom ethics, perhaps we need a an in a nutshell understanding of what workplace theology is, because I know that probably for a lot of listeners, they, this might be the first time they're ever hearing uh, this sort of terminology, that there is a Christian faith perspective on what happens in the workplace. When you're doing a special introduction for people who are uh, just being introduced into this idea of workplace theology, uh, what do you say, Gordon? Give us a, give us a quick uh, two-minute in a nutshell update on what workplace theology does. Okay, well, I guess I call that the Sunday-Monday connection, and it's basically the work is an expression of our service and worship to God. It also, um, once Jesus calls us to uh, worship him and follow him and to give our lives to him, that includes our our whole lives. It's not just a a bare statement. Even the devil, you know, says, um, says he believes. But it's actually, like I said before, putting our bodies on the line, having our minds transformed to think Christianly and to think in terms of sort of mercy and justice of God in the way we approach our, our colleagues, in the way we approach the quality of work that we produce, in the way we produ- approach our, our bosses and um, both um, obeying all the reasonable kind of requests that are, that are made of us and, you know, following those, but sometimes we may need to actually um, respectfully and submissively um, disagree in some contexts. And so there are lots of examples of that, whistleblowing uh, and uh, various other sorts of things. Well, I, I can remember basically, in effect, losing a job for standing up for a young uh, man who was um, like an assistant youth worker to me when I was a youth worker and uh, who was really kind of had, um, you know, had a bit sort of, you know, stripped off him, torn to pieces in some ways by the minister at the time. And, and I, I spoke up for him and, and said I didn't believe that was, that was just. Uh, I basically lost my job over it. Um, so I think, there's a, 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 I think there's a long history, too, of Christians being involved. I think there are good Christian business people and people at very, very high levels. We have a Faith and Work Award and we seek to uh, recognise those those people um we've actually got a that coming up um award will go to wilma galley who's the um was head of employment plus for the salvation army she now heads up the christian research association and we're having that on the, the 12th of may at ridley college and ethos puts that on with with ridley and that's designed to recognize christians who've really put themselves on the line because she she spoke up about various issues at the time and, and showed great courage. So um, there are people operating at that quite high level and then there are people who are operating at the very kind of, um, if you like, you know, the ordinary kind of level who are often, you know, sometimes risking their lives in their workplaces. And um, I can remember my son coming home from his apprenticeship and, that, and sometimes he'd say to me, he was, 
he was operating in a place where he was about within a foot of a live wire um, in a place that had no protection, etc., for him. And I used, to, I used to pray like mad every day, go off to work uh, because of those sorts of things. So I think we need to, a workplace theology needs to needs to look at both the top and and the bottom um, in the light of God's God's justice and God's mercy um, and what we see in Jesus. Let me just bring you back to the idea of ethos having an award, uh, and I imagine you're recognising uh, those who are functioning with a Christian ethic in business and in the workplace. Is that the way that award works? Are you, how do you nominate for that? I mean, there might be people uh, around the nation listening to us now who might be thinking, what a great idea to actually bring into contrast uh, the reality of a Christian ethic and what that means for the workplace as opposed to uh, the non-Christian ethic, which may actually be uh, a, corruption, a corruption-based ethic. Is that, a, is that a, a way to describe that? Can, can anyone uh, get nominated for that? In principle, yes. Um, what we do is we basically, we, we tend to want people who are relatively mature in, so that they have a reasonably long track record. That doesn't mean that they're bordering on retirement necessarily, but that they are, um, you know, they're, they're not likely to sort of suddenly kind of reverse and, you know, get, get involved in some great corporate scandal or something with that you've got to be pretty confident that uh, they've got a really good record of Christian character. I'll actually be speaking on the night about that um, because we think that Wilma exemplifies that. We try to be reasonably representative too, both male and female and across different spheres of society. And so we've had uh, a couple from the media, uh, Barney Schwartz, um, probably the last full-time religion editor when he worked for The Age, man of great integrity as a journalist, and Mark Scott, who was the head of the ABC. And uh, not all your listeners might realise that, that, that Mark Scott's a very strong Christian. He's now in, um, I think he's a leading public servant in education now. And um, they've all given outstanding addresses about the way their faith interacts with, with their work. Some, sometimes it's, it's um, you know, more upfront than others. Sometimes it's a, it's a quiet example but where they've shown real integrity and real integration between their Sunday and their Monday, between their faith and the work, um, that's what we're looking for, those kind of models across a whole range of different job situations. What you're talking about is people who have, uh, for a long time, had their character formed uh, by their Christianity. And so you've got this character formation that... Mm outworks itself into uh, the the workplace uh, whether you are the employer whether you're the employee this character formation this is this is part of what's happened uh, with uh, something of a christian heritage that we have in australia and what tends to happen with christian businesses as they grow uh, just reflect for us on on the the value of that character formation that happens in an individual that then eventually outworks itself in the workplace well, I think if you're going to have a character, you've got to have a story. My son used to be an actor, and uh, I'd get these massive scripts sent by these back in the days of fax machines, and, uh, and I'd have to go through them and check them out and make sure that I kind of, um, as a teenager at that stage, that I sort of approved, that it wouldn't corrupt his character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you, you need a story that that's based on. Now, your story can be the Christian story and centred in, in Christ, and that involves real service. And you can um, try and seek to follow Christ and imitate Christ in, in exemplifying that kind of service 
and sacrifice and, and putting others first, etc., etc. Um, like I can remember my, my late father who died um, late last year, and um, I, I dedicated my my uh, published PhD to him. Like he he helped me with the um, when I studied overseas and that. And um, I quoted, "If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing properly." That's what he taught me. That's what he he modelled when I'd be there in the concrete products and home improvements business that we had. And he would always be out in the yard lifting the concrete blocks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so much so that he got a bit a bad back. And um, he, I remember he told me the doctor said he had a degenerate back or degenerating back. So we used to talk about his joke about his degenerate back. But um, but that was a back that that came. You know, it's, he's literally marked in his body in a sense by being a servant. And, and he ran that business like a family business, and I was surrounded by the kind of unofficial aunts and uncles. I'd go out on the job with them, and and he'd be very fair. He made sure he didn't uh, favour the boss's son at all. In fact, I think he went over backwards at times. <laughs> I have yeah, a few stories about some some pretty tough jobs that he sent me out on, um, but there are other other ones like cleaning the swimming pools, which I really enjoyed because I'd jump in. Uh, let's come back to uh, to this uh, accusation. Uh, Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, uh, saying that there is rampant lawlessness. And, of course, she's talking about in the workplace and she's talking about employers. Uh, we mentioned the ABCC and the reformation of that. We had a whole double dissolution election over the issue and that was pointedly at corruption in the union movement. When you've got a workplace, uh, you've got this tension and it's a tension between the employer and the employee. You know, you want a a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and uh, you want from the employer's side of things, I mean, they've got to make a profit. That's uh, That's what they're in charge to do is to actually make a profit for the company. You've got this tension that's working, Gordon. So uh, when the tension is one-sided, somebody gets hurt. Is that a way of of thinking about how uh, fairness might work here? Yeah, well, I I think it's it's not a radical idea. It's actually a reasonably conservative idea that you work with checks and balances. And it was Lord Acton, who's a great um, liberal thinker, and he, he, he said, power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and so what you see is if if you have for instance companies that have have complete power what you see over time is that the wages tend to go down and historically that's what we're seeing now and part of the trump eruption in the u.s is uh that even though there was a recovery in the economy the wage rates of lots of people are still um, held down and have been so for decades. And, and, and lots of people haven't been um, re-employed. And so there's been, been a strong reaction in, in relationship to that. So when unions go, when you tend to have less union membership, you find that happens over time because you end up having the company um, and the individual worker rather than the company needing to negotiate with a group of workers, which helps provide a balance between those two groups. On the other hand, if you get situations where unions have too much power and the laws aren't sufficiently enforced there, then you can have the same kind of problem there where there's a kind of you know blackmail that can take place with certain unions. And so 
so I think we've got to look at the range of unlawful behaviour that goes on. So at the, at the top level and company level, we've had the Panama revelations about people who, and, and individuals and companies, these are the highest levels in government, and uh, including Australia, and at the um, high, high levels of you know, household names, App, Apple, Google, uh, Starbucks, you name it, they, a huge number basically just offload their tax payments by shuffling between their different global entities so that they level things out, so that the, the profits don't really show. So I think you're right to say it's, it's um, you know, people need to make a profit, otherwise you can't survive. But profit is a great, um, a great Christian um, said, and who, who ran one of the top 500 companies, Herman Miller um, Company, he, he basically said, we, we live to breathe, we don't breathe to live. Um, sorry, we breathe to live, not the other way around. Um, so, so profit is, is a breath that enables a company to, to survive and to continue. But it makes products, it, uh, it sort of serves a community in various ways, that's why, the way it's meant to work. There's a kind of agreement that, or, or a social license between companies and the community now, communities have different representatives. They can be they can be um, they can be unions. They can be civil society groups. They can be um, the local council and their zoning laws, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of that in civil society kind of comes together and is meant to try and balance things. That's um, why we hopefully have had increasing levels of social responsibility or corporate social responsibility in uh, in some cases. And there are good business examples of that, but there are also bad examples, particularly not paying tax, not, not paying employees properly. So Domino's, the recent cases and franchisee groups, um, so uh, 7-Eleven, etc. There have been some very, very bad examples and exploitation of the foreign workers' visas as well, uh, where people are being under, underpaid. So, and then the Bible has a lot to say about that. You know, not um, you know, you've got to pay your worker on time in a daily way. Um, not hold over their their cloak overnight, um, so they freeze to death. There's a whole range of of laws that you see both in the Old Testament and in books like James, for instance. But there's also the the um, there's the importance that if you go to protest against wrongdoing and this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Well, how did it get its name? It, because it was, a, it was both a protest by Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, but it was also named later in a, in a protest by a group protest, and that's how we actually got the name Protestants. Now, um, you have to work out what, um, what are the principles of protesting, and that should include being... Uh, submissive in some ways, that means sort of orderly and respectful and willing to take the punishment if that uh, if the legal authorities do determine that. And so I think there's some of the um, things we need to look at. So if you look at something like strikes, and I think um, that McManus was speaking up about trying to um, challenge uh, some of the restrictions on, on some strikes... But if you look at, at things like strikes, you could judge them by saying, let's compare the just war tradition. In um, You don't have to be a pacifist to kind of um, follow this argument. But the just war tradition would say innocent civilians shouldn't suffer 
So you need to try and work out, okay, how could we do this, this without innocent civilians suffering or keeping them those that suffering to a minimum? So we try to do no harm. Uh, we should have been gone through a whole process of of negotiation to try and sort things out. And any um, any coercive action should be the last resort. That would be that that's the sort of the just law kind of principles, and I think they would apply to strikes as well and uh, and union actions in the way they ought to operate, uh, just as they ought to operate to um, for governments. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour, Dr. Gordon Priest, who is Director of Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society, an international leader in workplace theology. We're talking about uh, the accusation that there is rampant lawlessness in the workplace. You can join our conversation on 1-800-316-316. 1-800-316-316. Gordon, as we talk about rampant lawlessness, and I mentioned that was a statement made by the new ACT Secretary Sally McManus last week. Is she, in fact, right? Is there rampant lawlessness that's happening in uh, the workplaces of industry and uh, all different levels of society all around Australia? What are your thoughts? I think she is right in certain areas, and I think in the construction industry, which is it's probably the part of the, the CFMEU, that, uh, which is what the context was that she was asked about, um, that has very high casualty rates. So you're actually talking about people losing their lives. That's partly why I use the, the uh, comparison with just law about um, killing. Um, now, I think that is true, and I think it needs to be acknowledged. And the, the various examples I gave before about people complete tax dodging, for instance, um, if we want to think biblically, you know, in Romans 13, Paul's talking in a context that seems to be about um, paying your taxes because there were people who weren't paying their taxes in Rome at the time. And he's saying that Christians ought to be willing to pay, pay their taxes. And so, um, so we need to recognise um, that, that side. Um, well, both sides. So, so there's that, that corporate side that they need to provide safe working conditions and OH&S, etc. And we have laws about that and that, that they ought to pay their taxes. But there's also um, the side that, in relationship to protest by unions, etc., that they need to use their their power responsibly. They shouldn't do harm to innocent civilians. There should be decent notice of protests. There needs to be um, balance of power and working through the regular kind of systems of industrial relations, fair work, etc., etc., and. Um, yeah, and, and until a point where if that may not be able to be achieved and you really believe the situation is still unjust, then there may still be uh, space for, for protest at, at that point. And now people will disagree about the rightness or wrongness of those particular situations. But in principle, that, that's, how we got, um, that's how we got a black president in the U.S., to be frank, regardless of people's views about Obama, that was basically through civil disobedience by the black churches and and other people who joined in with them as well. But Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend tends to be dropped off way too often. But and 
their civil disobedience, their orderly civil disobedience against considerable violence, but using the media uh, as the dawn of the TV age and using the language not only of... Um, so they, they, in a sense, they broke particular laws in particular states, but what Martin Luther King did, he, he appealed to the law above the law, the, the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution um, and, the, and its Bill of Rights. So he appealed to that and used that language in his great, great speeches to say this is the kind of what it means to be a citizen and, and blacks are entitled to those citizens' rights. And that actually trumped those particular laws or the interpretation of those laws that was being used in the South. Gordon, I'll break in here because we're about to go to news, but uh, inviting listeners to join the conversation, 1-800-316-316. And, uh, Gordon, as we talk about this idea of rampant lawlessness and the need to address that as a Christian believer, as we reflect historically... Christians have largely been those who've been at the helm of uh, of reforms from corruption in historical contexts. As you think of uh, great Christian leaders who've led the way in so many contexts, uh, who comes to mind? Well, you've got Wesley, um, whose dying uh, words, I think, were to Wilberforce uh, to basically make sure he got rid of slavery in Wilberforce and the Clapham sect. So it's, it's, we often you know, think of the heroes, but there's, there was a whole group around Wilberforce working with him and for over 30 years of, of research, um, prayer, um, sometimes protest, but it was always always by legal means um, and, and particularly parliamentary reform. But, you know, they would have... The, their kinds of protests were um, about a million people signed petitions, for instance, against slavery. And uh, so you had them, but you, you also had the toll puddle martyrs. So the, the foundations of the modern union movement were in protests, the charters. They were, they were called, and they, they had um, they, these these people. Um, they were Methodists, many of them, and uh, they lost their lives in in the mid nineteenth century. Care Care Hardy was a Scotsman, um, strong Christian. Uh, Kevin Rudd named him as the, uh, one of his great heroes, because he was one of the the real founders of the union movement. What what we find is often the Christian origins of groups like Christians involved in the union movement um, and in the early foundations of the Labor Party, for instance, uh, are often forgotten. Um, same, same happens with the Liberal Party. And so uh, we, we kind of need reform in many ways to go back to the roots and recover some of those Christian traditions. Um, I wanted to say also, just about McMan- uh, McManus's comments, I think the right to protest isn't sort of a blank check. And so those kind of rules or principles that I mentioned earlier on about um, um, not doing harm to innocents, et cetera, et cetera, negotiating um, as a last resort, et cetera, et cetera, need to be observed. And and certainly um, she needs to, I think, to condemn any thuggery or fraud or, or other kind of unlawfulness. And there has been quite a lot of corruption in parts of the union movement, but there's also corruption um, at, in various businesses that we've seen. So what we're seeing is a kind of spreading corruption across both sides. It's um, both, both left and right in, uh, in our society, and we've got to somehow try and work out how we're going to tackle 
that in a consistent kind of way as Christians. If we think of uh, corruption a little bit like uh, leaven in the uh, in the dough, uh, you know, when, uh, when that's a, a biblical illustration there too about uh, about uh, not only sort of sinfulness but also righteousness. Uh, there's a certain sense in which uh, you know corruption spreads. It's a little bit like it's contagious. If you take a Christian leadership out of the political realm, and this is, I guess, why we often think it's good to have uh, our leaders, whether they be prime ministers or premiers, to be people of Christian faith, because we recognise that there is a, 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 a stance against corruption that doesn't come from someone who isn't necessarily holding to a religious faith. If we, if we talk about the way things spread, I imagine uh, that, Gordon, when we talk about uh, solutions, we have to talk about leaders and the faith of leaders and the strength of character of leaders to stand against corruption because uh, without a Christian faith foundation, uh, there isn't necessarily going to be that strength of character there to be able to stand up and say what's right and what's wrong. Yes, well, I think I, I I wouldn't say it's exclusively Christian in the sense that uh, that all people are made in the image of God, and sometimes you find there are non-Christians who will actually act some things out better than Christians do, and sometimes you'll find some Christians who have very big blind spots, and I I frankly think that Joe jo Jockey Peterson's anti-protest uh, laws were wrong. And, and I think they're unbiblical, um, to give, give one example, to, to go back. Um, but I think, I, I think what we need is, is, like I said with Wilberforce, Wilberforce was surrounded by the Clapham sect, and um, that was a highly disciplined group of people. It was a mixed group. There were business people, bankers, Henry Thornton. Um, there were researchers, Hannah Moore, who founded the Sunday School Movement. I think we need to operate at multiple levels. And if you're going to change institutions, it's not just about getting the prime minister or president elected, because they will soon be out. And in our system, they might be out in three years. And so I think what we, what we need to look at is how do we generate multiple leaders and from the grassroots up who are so um, dis- well-discipled as Christians and who learn how to do that um, not just in church, although the early Methodists and the early Unionists learnt their schools in Methodist chapels. A lot of them were minors. But we need to do um, how do we generate um, good business people? How do we generate people with real character and who'll serve the society, who'll, who'll serve the environment, who'll serve their workers, etc., and, and, and create good businesses that, that are not only profitable but but are, are also doing good as well as doing well. And so I think it starts for us um, in church, but it's the people of God not only gathered but scattered. So not only gathered on Sunday, reminding ourselves of our story, uh, reaffirming the Christ-like character that we're meant to have, but then being supported as they go out to work and whether that's business people at the, and or, or whether that's unionists, etc., etc., but also held accountable. And if they say they're Christian, well, we expect that they will live up to it. But sometimes people say that they're Christian, like in the States, it's very hard to tell who's really acting out their Christianity because there are so many people who say that they're Christian. And so there is, there is electoral gain to be won by putting on a Christian label.
And interestingly, Gordon, if you're talking about uh, industry leaders, uh, people who rise to uh, the uh, level of prominence where they have influence, and you're talking about uh, raising leaders uh, from young years into maturity who will then actually uh, have these sorts of values that will be a good influence and will stand against corruption. But it's an interesting, uh, I'll get your insights here, because uh, most people who are being trained and being skilled in areas of leadership for industry are coming through our universities. And the criticism that comes to universities is, of course, that universities have become so secularised that the Christian values and foundations are being taken out of those university contexts. And so, therefore, you've got people who are rising to you know, these levels of gifted leadership, but perhaps the shaping of them hasn't been to the to the way that we as Christians might think is a good shaping. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on university as part of the, the blockage as to how uh, Christian leadership might grow to the surface? Well, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting comment. I think, well, I went, let me give an illustration. I went to my daughter's graduation on Saturday. We were very proudly there and, and it was actually a very good graduation in many, many ways. And uh, she graduated with a master's in narrative therapy and she works with, with refugees. And it was a, it was a great moment um, for us as a family. But it was also great because they had, there were four people like her with first-class honours who were in, Indigenous, four Aboriginal speakers, um, people. There were three standing up there and one spoke for all of them. It was a kind of group product, the, the talk. And they gave a wonderful address. There was a welcome, welcome to, to country by a, an Aboriginal elder. Um, where I had some issues, though, so I thought all of that was great, but there were some issues with the speaker who gave, he was a physicist, and he gave a presentation that kind of made out that there was a kind of complete conflict between revelation and reason. And he cited Galileo, and that's off, that story is often told that way, and there may be some elements about that. Um, there are other elements. Galileo is after, was, after all, a Christian, and he protested against the church at points where he thought they were suppressing the, uh, the truth, if you like. So there's another kind of reading of that, that you've actually got a Christian protest going on there, but over against the institution. So we need to have that kind of freedom within the church to challenge, just like Martin Luther challenged the church later on. So I think we need, I think there are good things about our universities, and uh, there are, but there are also sometimes problems. And it was interesting that the big uh, mural, wonderful mural in the building, I think, was of Prometheus. Now, Prometheus was the one who tried to steal the fire from the gods. Uh, this is in Wilson Hall at Melbourne University, and and it's it's like this is this is the knowledge, and we kind of steal the knowledge, we grab the knowledge from the gods ourselves, we take um, it in terms of our own reason rather than revelation. Now, when in the Christian tradition is about faith seeking understanding, that's always been the, the the great theologians have always said that's what it is. It's faith seeking understanding. It's not faith against understanding but there's a firm foundation in faith. And I think we need to get back to that. So it's not uh, the universities just trying to say, well, and, and you know, kind of uh, say Christianity is an irrational kind of, kind of thing. It, it never has been. It's always involved lots of rational argument. 
but uh, Abraham protests, if you like, to God about uh, shall not the God of all the earth do what is just, do what is right. So it's built even into our relationship with God in some ways. Even Jesus asks God, you know, can't you take this cup away from me? But then he submits when he realizes there's no other way. So I think there are, there's an artificial view of a warfare between Christianity and the universities. The universities started in the monasteries, in fact. Yep. So again, we need to kind of retrace our, the roots of our society. And, uh, and, and, and roots um, is it's a basic word for both conservative, going back to the roots, um, the traditions, but, but also it's um, radix, which is the root of radical as well. So I think we need to do that biblically and in terms of church history and try and reclaim some of that heritage. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. The Reverend Dr. Gordon Priest is our guest this hour. He's the Director of Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. We're talking about accusations that there is rampant lawlessness... Uh, that's come from the union movement about employers. And, of course, this may be a criticism that comes from every side, but rampant lawlessness has been the topic of our conversation this hour here on 2020. Uh, Let me just bring to your attention, uh, Gordon, uh, the idea of the changes to interest rate, uh, to to penalty rates uh, that uh, were introduced uh, just recently. You've been, in fact, thinking and writing about uh, penalty rates and how that affects Australians. Uh, What are your overall thoughts? Well, as a Social Responsibility Committee for the um, Melbourne Anglican Diocese, we put a submission into the Fair um, Work Commission about that. And I guess the kind of position that I've argued, and this will come out in an article in the Melbourne Anglican um, at the beginning of April, is that reducing penalty rates reduces the common good and common time. So the analogy I use is, you know the idea of the commons that they used to have, which is an area in the village where people could graze sheep or they could, you know, pluck blackberries or whatever, a bit like the, it was a kind of equivalent of not um, harvesting right to the very edges of your field, like in the Book of Ruth, that the poor would be able to get some access to this common area um, that they didn't own. And then then it was closed off. So um, this land or place was closed off and did great damage to the poor and to society. Well, I think the idea that we have a shared day off, a shared Sabbath, now, different religions have their have different days off. For Islam, it's on the Friday. For for Jews, it's from Saturday night. Sorry, Friday night through Saturday. But that the basic principle about one day in seven as a shared day of rest for all religions or none is something that needs to be observed in society. And in our society, being given the bulk of about about 60%, um, we'd still say that they're Christian, that that day, through tradition, has been on Sundays. And the great problem now is that this becomes a barbecue stopper, to use John Howard's phrase, slightly differently than what he used it. Um, uh, But it means if we drop the penalty rate, saying Sunday is somehow special, what we end up doing is we are saying all days are pretty much the same. And we'll start to find that principle going, going through the wage system. And I think that's going to do a lot of damage to, to society. It'll also damage families because 
um, the bulk of those people are women who are involved in that kind of work. And if they're taking a cut of 25%, that's going to do damage to those families. Um, often they're single-parent-headed families, and, uh, and, and they get very, um, very, very poor um, support from the government. And uh, there, are, there are a range of kind of aspects in, in terms of this, but I think my big worry is it changes our view of time. So we have an individualistic, consumerist kind of view of time rather than a more communal view of time. I also think it's going to have trouble for Christians regarding um, freedom of worship in some ways. And I think that will be a that will be an increasing problem um, because we're reducing the view of the specialness of, of Sunday in our society. That's probably enough to to sort of um, to give you something to come there's, back to me about. There's a lot in there, and uh, as we close off our conversation about steps forward, about what sort of things you might do practically uh, in order to make some sort of an influence in this area. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts, Gordon, uh, for the ordinary Christian who's listening in? And uh, penalty rates may be affecting our teenage sons and daughters or maybe our spouse. Uh, what can we do? I mean, uh, is, there a, is there a sense in which you just have to take it on the chin? Most people will feel that way. I think... Uh, we need to try and show that this isn't just a kind of Christian peccadillo or something, just a you know personal preference, but that, as Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man or for humanity, not man for the Sabbath. And so God's laws are liberating. And, or, and I would say God's law, L-O-R-E, God's story is liberating. And if we find our character, both as individuals and as societies and as businesses and as unions, in the light of that liberating law, which allows room for protest and debate, then we will be a much better society. And that, those, that kind of debate is at the very roots of democratic societies. And there was a lot of Christian involvement in the roots of, of that um, in the idea of you, you elect your elders for a church, etc., etc., um, was a very at the very roots of modern democracy, and so I think we need to to stand up about this and learn how we de- how do we debate and how do we dialogue in an increasingly pluralistic society because we we can't just argue from authority we can't just say well the Bible says so we need to actually demonstrate the liberating fruit that comes from a biblical perspective. And we need to also recognise that our own lack of self-policing, like on the abuse issues, for instance, has more than anything compromised any sense of authority that we have. So what we've got to go now is, in, in a sense, not argue from authority, even though I still believe in the authority of the Bible, but in the pluralist context, we have to argue from pastoral authenticity, the kind of thing of that you know, 23 of the 25 largest welfare groups in the country are Christian. We need to to show the fruits of Christian volunteer labour in the local communities. And we need to um, pick up on the fact that even if some people don't like the institutional church, they like the fact that there's one in their neighbourhood and that there's people gathering uh, there and that they're connecting with their community, they're offering their buildings, etc., etc. And so I think we've got to try and really demonstrate the liberating nature of what it means to be Christian in our society. Well, Gordon Priest, so good getting your insights. And uh, for listeners, 
Uh, we've been talking about rampant lawlessness and really coming to a conclusion that, yes, there is rampant lawlessness and it does happen on both sides of the equation when it comes to business and the industry. And it is happening in uh, employees and it is happening in employers. And what do you do about that? Well, as Gordon Priest is saying, uh, faith seeks understanding and it is in character development that, uh, that Christian values and insights come to the fore when it comes to addressing these sorts of issues. Uh, Gordon, uh, there's a lot of things that you shared and I'll encourage listeners to later on today uh, have another listen to this conversation because uh, we'll have it on podcast on our 2020 page but so much in the conversation there and certainly for those who are seeking to understand where the rubber hits the road, where Christian faith actually has a huge impact on the issues that are facing the nation, where the Christian faith that we hold has had a huge impact on the formation and foundation of these things. And even, uh, Gordon, to be able to say that the fact that we have a day of rest or a day to worship, uh, in fact, comes from a Christian foundation in what we have here in Australia. And for those who do have to work on that day, to be adequately compensated is actually uh, something of uh, a fairness about that. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for being part of 2020 today. I'll point people to the website. Uh, Gordon Priest is the director of Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. There's lots of great resources on the Ethos website. It's ethos.org.au. Gordon, thanks for for being with us on 2020 today. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure now. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.